Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. In the first part of this series, we began with the question, where did language come from? We followed two central narratives. The first, that language evolved gradually over millions of years alongside other adaptive physical and cognitive systems and in concert with culture. The second asserted that language appeared suddenly in humans and led to a behavioural and cultural flowering which continues today as evidenced by our continual technological advancements. Throughout those five episodes, we introduced a variety of concepts from psychology and philosophy. So while this second part focuses more on the psychology of language, we can see that it is interwoven throughout our journey. I've said it before, nothing stands in isolation, it is all related. Indeed, that is in many ways the thread that connects each episode of this podcast, the relatedness of so many concepts, which may at first appear unique, but which are in actuality simply extensions upon a theme, perhaps metaphorically thought of as recursive ideas. So as we move ahead with our story of language, we will revisit ideas raised earlier. The splitting of the series into three parts is somewhat arbitrary in that regard, but it at least serves to categorise our approach to the topic and tease apart its complexities. The question which forms the theme for this second part of the series then is simply, how do we use language? There is of course no single concise answer, but we will take a look at a few key ways in which we use language and how it influences our social worlds. Culture is a term that has come up a lot so far, and we'll see it continue to be relevant to our study of language in the second part. First, we'll unpack semantics. That's the meaning found in language and the different ways in which meaning is derived from words and how we use language to represent ideas predominantly through metaphor. We'll then consider pragmatics, the study of how language influences our social worlds through discourse and the types of language we use in different social settings and how much of our social identity is determined by the dialects we speak. We'll then take a quick detour into the power of language over societal values, using the sinister example of the George Orwell novel 1984. And finally, we'll end this part on a high note by looking at swearing and the role it plays in not only our interactions, but also our experience in the world. That's a lot to unpack, so I've broken it into two episodes, this and the next. But if you've made it this far through the series, then I think you're going to enjoy this part as through understanding how our psychology is influenced by language, we can gain a better grasp on the power of language to shape and mould both our inner worlds and our outer ones. That old kid's chant, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me, might not be as true as we thought in those halcyon schoolyard days. When we hear the word semantics, it is often used pejoratively to inform us that whatever point we are making is overly pedantic and missing the overarching theme of what it is we're trying to say. That's just semantics. But really, language is all about semantics, or as it might better be referred to, as meaning. Fundamentally, language is about the act of conveying information, and what could be more important for that to occur than the meaning behind that conveyance? When an animal leaves its paw print in soft mud, 
It communicates to us indirectly via an index sign, and we interpret its meaning easily. A good tracker will identify the type and size of animal with little difficulty. But as we know, that is not really language, in the sense we think of it, in terms of communication between humans. Meaning is not always obvious. Our intentions when we communicate are often misunderstood. Such is the challenge of arbitrary meaning-making systems, like the spoken or written word. But just like the paw print, words are also signs, and therefore they must be interpreted to be understood. Regardless of whether we believe our internal grammars are learned or innate, we must still construct and transmit information according to some code composed of arbitrary figures and sounds which represent meaning. We know from our interview with Professor Quentin Atkinson that the smallest unit of these is the phonem, and these can be traced back through time to our early origins. Somehow, over millennia, these small units of sound, which eventually took on a visual form, assembled and coalesced into units of meaning. And these meanings continue to evolve as memes which represent and express our ever-evolving cultural, social worlds. Darwin's theory of natural selection, evolution, is so far the best answer we have for how we, and everything else that exists today, and everything that existed before, got here. As a facet of the biological organism, language must have evolved with the emergence of our species. As meaning is an inherent property of language, indeed its conveyance is the point of communication, this capacity too must have evolved, at least structurally. This is to say, we have evolved an operating system that allows us to assign meaning to arbitrary symbols. The software we are running which describes those meanings specifically is culturally determined. Both are crucial for our capacity for language. Technically, semantics concerns the conceptual, logical and formal relationships between words and meaning. Much of Noam Chomsky's work focuses on language at this level. There are many subfields of semantics which are intriguing, however we'll take just a high level view which will touch upon a few concepts scattered across several domains. Let's begin with a simple question. How do words represent meaning? English is obviously our reference language for this series, but there is nothing particularly unique about English. All languages map onto these concepts just as easily, as we are really talking about rules, or ways in which language can be understood in terms of how it works. In saying that, English is not an easy language because words often mean different things. The meaning we take literally, what something represents on the face of it, is known as its denotation. An often cited example is the word blue. We could say, Charlotte is blue. In this example, the denotation is that Charlotte is quite literally coloured blue. Perhaps she is wearing blue makeup for a part in a play. This literal form of meaning is important. It is analogous to the icon. The word means exactly what it says it means. But we know that this short sentence could mean something else entirely. It could be metaphor. It probably is. Charlotte is blue could mean Charlotte is feeling sad, because we know blue also means down or depressed. This alternative meaning of the word is known as its connotation, or secondary meaning. Both the denotation, that's its literal meaning, and its connotation, the secondary or figurative meaning, refer to a concept. The concept of a word is known as its referent. Literally, what is it referring to? Simply, when we use a word we are referring to a concept. The trick to understanding language is to understand its reference. 
This is a challenge for learners of a language, as reference can be both tangible and abstract, as we've seen in this example. If we approach language with too much logic, we miss the point of much of what we express, because so much of what we share is connotative and abstract. Think of the types of concepts we may wish to convey. I point to something I see and describe it to you. Look, a cat. There is little cognitive work required to understand this communication. I'll think about it, on the other hand, is far more challenging. What is thought? What is it? What is it to think about it? This concept is intangible, subjective and connotative. Concepts like justice, fairness and love are further examples of the abstract nature of reference. But we use language to construct entire realities that do not exist. We conjure into psychological being everything that exists in the world and everything that doesn't. When we conceptualize something from a word in this way, it is called displacement. We mentally create a representation of something in the mind which does not exist in front of us. In communication, the speaker shares their representation with a fellow interlocutor. When meaning is shared between those engaging in conversation, their mental representations are said to be in alignment. For alignment to occur, meaning must be understood on many levels. Language, therefore, can become complicated. Fortunately, though, we don't actually need to understand all of the language we come across because we can infer meaning simply from context. The grammatical rules of a language place constraints on the types of words that can fit together, and that allows us to infer meaning even if we missed a word or don't understand its reference directly. In this way, successful communication does not require perfect comprehension. It is simply enough to get the gist. I think a reason why I find language so interesting, and perhaps why it is so crucial to our humanity, is because it forms a complex network of shared ideas which often do not correspond to the physical world. This is the intellectual playground of philosophers who love to dream of such notions and package them neatly into ideas that can be studied close up and profit as explanatory of reality. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato considered objects both physical and abstract as forms, Everything we see is a representation of something. Words and meaning carry a similar relationship, where we can understand them in terms of denotation, their literal meaning, but their connotative meaning reveals something other than what we see. Perhaps the early forms of language were primarily denotative. Homo erectus may have begun with just such literal communication in a form of proto-language which communicated solely in terms of the here and now, just as we see in the calls and cries of other animals. It is the richness and versatility of modern language that is enabled by connotation, and in turn, the sophistication with which we can conjure mental representations and align these between each other. However, proto-language, where concepts are literal and less liable to misinterpretation, persist in human language today through pigeons. Pigeons are grammatically uh, simplified languages created by blending words and phrases of dissimilar languages to allow communication between speakers of each. An example found in colloquial English is the phrase long time no see, which originated in the Chinese English pidgin spoken between the 17th and 19th centuries. In pidgins, complex grammatical rules are dropped for the sake of simplicity. Pidgins are akin to language as it is spoken by children learning to speak and communicate. They serve a functional purpose. They allow humans to communicate. So while they have uh, characteristics similar to proto-language, they effectively convey meaning. 
Interestingly though, language seems destined to become increasingly complex as subsequent generations raised with pigeons adapt these languages into more grammatically sophisticated, syntactically and lexically richer languages known as creoles. Similar to the way that sign language developed spontaneously by deaf children in Nicaragua became more complex over time. The value of pigeons, then, is juxtaposed by the challenges introduced by complex grammars, as communication through language is obviously not a solo endeavour. What I mean when I say or write something may not be what you interpret. Perhaps you miss the connotation, or perhaps what I say means something different to you. There are many ways in which my meaning can be lost in translation, so to speak, because meaning, particularly connotative meaning, is influenced by two important aspects culture, and context. Dan Everett says, Meaning is not found merely in what is said, but in what is heard, and how the information that is heard is responded to. In order for our communication to be successful, for the most part, we must share ontological and epistemological worldviews, worldviews which are influenced by our culture. And a vehicle we use for this is metaphor. The linguists George Lakoff and Mark Johnson demonstrated the depth with which language consists of connotative meaning expressed through metaphor. We do this so often that we take it for granted, just like I did there. We take it. If we really reflect on how we actually speak, we soon realise that much of what we say is nonsense. Like that sentence, am I saying to literally stand in front of a mirror and analyse your reflection to make better sense of how you speak? No, of course not. I'm invoking a mental reflection to think about it. Lakoff and Johnson described the conceptualization of our cultural metaphorical reference to meaning as schemas. We can use mood here as an example. We apply a physical dimension to concepts such as happy and sad. When we describe the emotion happy, we refer to that state of mind as being up or positive. Conversely, we describe the emotion of sadness as being down or low. I'm even changing my voice to reflect that as well. We create an abstract continuum of emotion which resembles a physical form. This seems so obvious to us, as if it could be any other way. But really, those meanings are arbitrary. We uh, create a visual world in our minds and those of others when we communicate by assigning concepts relative physical dimensions. And I even use sound then as well. I'm just thinking about this as I'm reading it. We create a mental image of the world which we use to express meaning. Knowledge is expressed in metaphorical terms of light and dark. I see clearly that light goes on when I get an idea, or I'm stuck as if in the dark when I don't. Ideas are also expressed as people. They live on, or maybe in their infancy. We also represent them with tool-based metaphors, like we pick something up, or hammer home a point, or drill down into an idea. We aren't consciously aware of these metaphors in everyday language because they are so culturally normalised. We don't see their denotative meanings, we see only the metaphorical connotations, but they are still there. We accept these non-literal meanings because they are not novel to us. We don't hear them denotatively, we just interpret what they represent. They are salient to us. But now and again we may hear a metaphor which we haven't heard before or which doesn't seem to fit. This gets our attention so we can say that such a non-literal meaning has low salience in our everyday usage. The interesting thing about this is that our brain processes metaphors differently depending on their level of salience. For instance, we process novel, non-salient, non-literal language more heavily in the right hemisphere of the brain, 
while it processes more conventional language more heavily on the left. This is to say that metaphor, sarcasm and perhaps even our sense of humour is largely a function of the right hemisphere of the brain. Why this is interesting is that language processing does seem to be most closely associated with regions of the left hemisphere, Broca's and Wernicke's area, as we've talked about in the episode Mind and Body. This suggests that meaning, particularly when we consider how much of the language we employ in everyday conversation is non-literal, occurs in the right hemisphere. If you don't get a joke, tell your left brain to be quiet for a while so your right brain can have the laugh. Think also of how we visualise the meaning of abstract concepts, like time for instance. For most people who are listening to this right now, time extends from left to right, with the present being in the centre. The past occurs on the left of our abstract concept of time. Things that happen in the future occur on the right. If we are talking about things that happened or may happen in one of these time periods, then our co-speech gestures will often depict this continuum. We gesture to the past with our left hand and to the future with our right. But for people whose language reads from right to left, Arabic for instance, that continuum is reversed. But this is really just scratching the surface of our remarkable ability to create mental maps of time and space. As a brief sidebar, earlier in the series, I described how spoken recursion is an important element of most languages. But we not only speak in recursive terms, we also think in them. Consider this sentence. Scientists can look back to just a few nanoseconds after the Big Bang, which formed the universe 13.8 billion years ago. Or how about this one? Down the street four blocks is a post box about shoulder height on which are inscribed small letters, each just an inch high. In both of these sentences, we must jump between differing temporal or physical scales. While the first example is hard to grasp in real terms, because the scales are preposterously large and infinitesimally small, we can still do so conceptually with relative ease. The second example requires even less imagination. We can think not only recursively about words and phrases and their composite meanings, but also about places, events and objects, as they are situated in time and space. This is a crucial element of our grammatical abilities, and it tells us a lot about how the human capacity for language may not be the product of a specialised language organ, but rather something that's inherent to our general intelligence, and we'll revisit this notion in the third and final part of this series. Returning to metaphor though, there are limitless associations to be found in many domains you may recognise, and they're pretty much all culturally determined. Next time you're having a conversation, think about what it is you or the other person is saying if taken at face value. It soon becomes apparent that we continually describe and imagine the world through analogy and metaphor to something else. These associations form shared mental models which we use to refer to different concepts and they are largely cultural in their usage. Sports offers a useful example of how different domains lend their connotations to our use of language to describe certain characteristics or events. The following are taken from Marcel Denisi's book Anthropological Linguistics. So I'm going to read um, a list of different domains, and in each domain uh, there's going to be an example of a metaphor that is used that fits that domain. So when referring to sports, we could use the domain of fortune, and say uh, that team is lucky, or fortune is on the side of that team. 
We could use the domain of money that team cashed in on the opportunity given to them, or he paid dearly for that drop ball. Uh, We can use the domain of eating that team is hungry for a win, or they're eating up their opponents. And maybe measurement is another one. He made an accurate pass, or they can go a long way with their defence. Denise ponders how different languages use domains like these to describe different concepts. Understanding such a relationship, he suggests, offers insight into the importance of certain concepts of culture. The results of his brief analysis are intriguing. For instance, he counted up all of the domains we use to refer to the concept of thinking. So we use the domain of food when we chew on an idea. We use fashion when we dress an idea up. We refer to vehicles when we get our brain into gear and so on. So he added them all up and he came up with 89 different domains that we use to metaphorically refer to thinking. However, when he did this for the concept of love, he came up with just 36. Now his list was not exhaustive, but it does suggest that the concept of thinking is far more productive in the English language than love. This is a specific relationship of these concepts to the English language, because he applied the same exercise to Italian, which is his mother tongue. The results were quite different. In Italian, he found 92 domains for thinking quite similar to English, but for love, he counted at least 99. What does this tell us? It does not mean that the concept of love is not meaningful in English-speaking cultures. It just means we have less ways of thinking about it. And it probably means more than just that, but such an analysis offers us an intriguing way of understanding how meaning is so much more than the denotative referent of words. It is tied through culture to the very essence of what it is to think and to express how we see the world, how we feel about it, and how we feel about each other. I'm reminded here of the cliché that Inuit people have over 50 words for snow. The cliché is not entirely incorrect, but the truth does not reveal anything particularly unique to the Inuit culture, rather the diversity with which many languages employ grammar to add descriptors to simple concepts. For example, in English we use the noun snow to describe suspended ice crystals, but we also describe the many properties which snow can acquire, such as wet snow, dry snow, slushy snow, falling snow, drifting snow, and on and on and on. Inuit languages do the same thing, but as snow is such an important part of their enduring environment, it makes sense that they would describe its many possible characteristics in regular conversation. Just as dwellers of a seaside town might have many ways of referring to the conditions of the ocean, on any given day. Clearly then, culture is central to how language is constructed and used in everyday life. But culture is not limited to just the types of words and metaphors used, but also the very rules we use to speak to one another and the context in which they occur. And this is the subject of the next episode where we look at the field of linguistics known as pragmatics. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email the Here and Now at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>